Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to the Fire in the Belly show. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by the Ali Muller. Good afternoon, good evening to you, I should say. It's morning here and it's, a, it's evening with yourself, so good, good evening to you. Hi, Pete. Thanks for having me on. Yes, yes, it's the uh, end of the day here for us. Yeah. Tell us, where exactly are you, Ali? I'm in Brisbane, Australia. Nice, nice. A little bit warmer than where we are here, that's for sure, I would imagine. So, yeah. It's, yeah, it's... perhaps. We're, we're coming out of winter, so it's just nice, and I really enjoy this season. Not like Ireland, which is basically just one long sort of winter season, but we'll, we'll not go there, you know. So, listen, Ali, welcome to the show. Tell us who are you, what do you do? And, well, now that we know where you're from, so what are you, where do you, who are you and where are you from? Or what do you do? Sure. Um, I'm the managing director of Goya Consulting Mm -hmm. and we put this together to think about strategy, innovation and transformation of organisations. So our go-to and the reason why we exist is we're here to empower people inside organisations to transform faster, turn strategy into something that is going to add value and dollars to the bottom line and create innovation ecosystems that deliver true opportunities to the organization. We're always talking about profit, purpose, and delivering value. And that was the whole reason we structured this organization. Well, okay. And is, is it purposely in that order, strategy, innovation, transformation? Is that the, is that the sequence that always goes in? Well, yeah, for us, it really does. So it depends. We get contacted by clients for lots of different reasons. But one of the reasons why I do put strategy at the front is something that we always go back to. We always need to do that health check on what is your strategic agenda? Where are you going? So that everything that we do aligns to the purpose and the strategy of the organisation. And if they don't have that, how do we help them fix the gaps or augment it or get a feel for what are we going to do for measuring our success? Everything does fall back to strategy. So that's why it's our number one thing Mm. that we always fall back to, especially when the health check on the organisation. And I take it this is an ongoing cycle, right? So you're constantly reviewing, rechecking, you know, evolving as you go through. Is that that fair enough? Absolutely. So, and also working out, you know is it the right time to continue with this part of the strategy are we looking at the right things do we need to pivot what externalities are are changing everything that we need to do it's an ever-evolving thing exactly well okay i love it i'm sure we're going to get more into that so before we do get into tell us what does fire in the belly mean to you Fire in the belly means to me, well, that's something that I think about. What's my little chutzpah? What, what makes me me? What makes me do what I do? And what is it that I'm going to continually fight for, for my life, for my passion and to meet my goals? That's what it means to me. Mm. And do you have it? Is it, is it part of you? Do you? Have you always had it? 
Uh, I think it's I think it's had um, moments where it's gone up and down in my life. I definitely have it. I definitely have a huge fire in my belly. Um, I think though that one thing I've learned over over the years is to really sink into more of my intuition now that I'm a bit older, a little bit wiser, you know, being through some of those trials and tribulations of life and understand how to make better decisions that's going to allow me to get there. So, and some of that is about what are the battles that you're going to fight, fighting the right battles? Um, What are the things that you need to do to make sure I am going where I need to go? Because it's not always going to be a smooth path. It's not a linear journey. And it's going to be rife with some ups and downs and some some problems and some challenges. Sure, sure. I mean, talk to us a little bit about your intuition, because I'm sure businesses and and you know business owners, business managers, etc., are going to. There's times when it's slightly intangible, right? There just is. There's an intuition that says this is right or this is wrong. Is that something Absolutely. you find? Absolutely. So, so I. I Innovation is really one of my core passions and and it's it really is one of the reasons why I do the things I do and, and why we also focus on transformation. And part of that is the process that I've put together being called data-driven and intuition-led. And that's where you need to really understand, yes, the information, the data, the customers, everything that I can gather to measure is telling me something but how am I going to take it from what is a known entity into something totally different, which is actually what the innovation is? So how do I sink into my intuition to know what is actually going to be correct? What am I doing? Now, the, the thing about that is you don't always get that right, um, and that's a challenge, and that's something that we live and learn along the way. And, you know, I, I can I can talk to that. I've had a couple of startups of my own and some that have done exceptionally well some that have kind of been a bit middle of the road and some that we've just gone, okay, so we made our money back and and that's that and, you know, at least we didn't lose our shirt. So you learn a lot of that along the way and to intuition is really about trusting your gut but also not being silly about how you're going forward, not just thinking that I need to do this because I have an ego-driven response or because I want to build an empire or um, create all those things. It's about what is the feeling that it's given me to know that I'm actually trying to do the right thing here and I'm on the right course. Um, So, yeah, you have to use it a lot. Um, The other area that I would use intuition a lot is when I'm working with a lot of corporate leaders and you know, particularly in the investment banking and finance world, which I come from, it's I'm um, not always getting the right story. So when my intuition tells me that someone's telling me all the right words, but their their mannerisms or their face or their micro expressions is telling me something totally different, what am I going to do with that information and how am I going to work through the challenges of that? So you kind of have to be on your toes all the time with your intuition, I think. And have you found, I mean, is, is yours quite sharp? I mean, where do you where do you find if something is off or what's going on? Where and how do you tend to pick it up? Do you know? Um I think sometimes you know really fast. Um, one of the things that I find is um that I sometimes struggle with. You you get a feeling straight away on someone that you're working with or someone that you're doing a deal with. 
and the you know the little good angel in you wants to say oh no put those feelings aside put you know you know give them a chance it may not be right but I have found inevitably that my first response and my that initial gut feel has always been right so I know as a young person I've put that aside and I've actually made some mistakes um with people and now I'm like actually no I'm going to follow that intuition I'm going to understand it and I'm going to work with it as opposed to potentially not working with that person it's you sort of think well how do I manage that the challenges the downside and what's going wrong um so that I can work through something and make it a positive for both sides if possible it doesn't always work but I mean, that's, that's experience, right? You know, it is, it's, it's a lifetime of, you can't always necessarily point to, to where, but you just know, you know, and that's wisdom. Well, I think, and also, you know, I think we've all had those moments in our career when we thought, oh, I shouldn't have trusted that move or that person, or I made the wrong decision. You know, there's all these different things. You can't, you can't blame anyone, but you can always look back and say, oh, I can probably see where I, you know, went wrong and went off course in retrospect and what would I do differently next time? So it, it's just a, you've got the scars and the, you know, from time in the corporate world and I think that's where it comes from more than anything else. I love that. So, I mean, you've, you've taken your scars and, and really, but so you've, you have your, your book is out, Corporate Innovation. Yes. So talk to us about that. I mean, you talk about unlocking the genius inside your organisation. Talk to us, what was your intention here and what, what's the book bringing to the table? The, the book is actually trying to start a conversation with corporate leaders and innovation leaders inside the corporate world to say what we really need to do is rethink how we are doing innovation so that you can understand if you do it differently that you can unlock a world of genius inside your organisation And the reason why I wrote the book is through years and years and years of experience that I have been consulting to the corporate world, giving them really large innovation ecosystems with my team and all the things that we were able to do, you know, the genius that we were able to unlock inside each organisation, the ideas that we were able to come up with. You know, these are the genius ideas that we didn't see coming, no one else saw coming And I would struggle to think that anyone from outside, any consultancy would have found them. And what we're really saying is don't go to us or any other consultancy and ask them to innovate for you. Don't ever outsource your innovation. It's a really big mistake. Everything you need to know is already inside your organisation. But what you need to do, you need to give them the tools, the frameworks, the processes, the structure, what I call minimum viable bureaucracy and a definite different set of rules than what you do for any other project to allow innovation to occur. So the whole purpose of the book was really getting in and debunking some of the myths that I think that we've been living through with corporate innovation um, and what I call getting rid of the demons that we have. So we try and get rid of that and then move through the innovation theater so that we stop with just beautiful ideas or we have hackathons and we stop there. And we work out that what I tell them is an idea is actually about half percent of what you need to do in terms of innovation because an idea doesn't equal innovation. Ideas are really cheap, easy and fast. They come everywhere all the time. It's actually what you do to turn that 
into something that is tangible, viable, and you can actually implement that works with your customers, that will be the the game-changing difference. So it really is that whole process of let's get rid of all the stuff that doesn't make any difference, that we're not doing correctly, and then also here's my nine-step framework to help you start thinking about this so that it's not just all words. Here's something you can do immediately inside your organisation to start thinking through a new process for corporate innovation. Can you give us an example maybe of somebody that's gone through this or or what it might look like for an organization? Where would they come from and go to? Uh, do you have an example? So, yeah, I've got, I've got heaps of examples. One of my favorite examples is uh, a gentleman by the name of Michael who we worked with. So we were consulting to uh, an airport in Australia and we were, we were getting ideas from everywhere, which was fantastic. And one of the maintenance cleaners came and spoke to the team and I, and he said to us, I have this really interesting idea, but I don't know what to do with it. And what he did was he broke down this whole explanation. So he started to explain to us how they clean the lights on the runways where the planes are landing. And it was mind boggling, right? I, I couldn't believe it in this day and age, we have men and women getting down on their hands and knees at night with steel wool and cleaners and basically buckets and chemicals and they're scrubbing uh, rubber off these runway lights and they do it every two weeks and they do it after hours so that they're outside the peak landing and takeoff time. So we're talking about, you know, 10, 11 p.m. at night till about 3, 4 in the morning every two weeks. Lots of people on the runway doing this and lots of security staff, you, you name it. This, this can't be real. He said, but I, I have an idea and I don't know what to do with it. And what it was is he had developed a process to have this bicarbonate of soda um, compressed spray gun to clean the lights. Um, like, a, like a gurney, I'm not sure if you have them in Ireland, but like this really high-powered spray water gun. And he built this little design to say, I think this could really work. And we took this idea and we worked it up and we had a look and he actually went and constructed this little tiny, um, I suppose, MVP model of it in his garage and brought it to work and we played with it. We looked at all the risk components around it and we tested it with bicarbonate soda and it worked like a dream. Like I couldn't believe how well this thing worked. And so that gave us the impetus to say, well, let's go and do a really commercial industrial design. Let's let's bring this up to see what it would look like to work at scale. So we built a model and we had it working and the team got really into it. And so did Michael. He got really enthusiastic and he said, ah, because these guys are these guys are solving the problems every day. And he said, I think we can do it better. Uh, what we could do is attach it to the back of this vehicle. We could build in all the visuals and the automation so that we never have to leave the vehicle. We can see exactly what's going. We can basically build a semi-automatic robot style arm to spray the lights. And that's exactly what they did. And we tested that and it cleaned these lights beautifully well. So we went from an airport that was using a significant amount of water, a significant amount of chemicals, and it had men and women on their hands and knees scrubbing, which actually causes a lot of problems because, you know, there's, you know, injuries and RSI and all the, all the other problems that goes along with that. 
And the other one is that when they get out of the vehicle to scrub, they, they're not in contact with the tower anymore. So it's actually a little dangerous. Um, and so when we tested it, they stayed in the vehicle. We could use half the staff and we didn't need any of the um, airside officers. We needed one vehicle instead of multiple. And we were able to use one bag. It's like about a 25 kilo bag of bicarbonate soda, which cost about 20 US dollars, which was significantly cheaper. And we used about a tenth of the water. So we looked at all that. And those costs alone were astronomically amazing. The efficiency, the cost saving. And then we did some testing over time and we looked at it over a larger period of time and we worked out that not only was it cleaning the lights, but also, you know, those big lenses on the runway that, you know, we don't need to replace them as often. The rubber seal was uh, was working better because bicarbonate of soda didn't erode it like other chemicals. And then that actually saved the IoT device that sat underneath the lens. So we didn't have to replace that as often because there was no seepage of water um, and erosion of the seal. Um, so we just kept on compounding these benefits over time. Um, and we went from what sounded like a crazy idea, what do we do with some bicarbonate soda to clean some runway lights, to a seven-figure cost-saving solution that they now have significant IP uh, around this patented model that sits on their balance sheet um, from an airport. So this is the genius that you can find when you actually dig into the organisation. You give them a process to work with it and you realise that it can come from anywhere. You never know where it's going to happen. Um, and the reason why I use that example is, is quite interesting is because he sat on that idea for years because he didn't know what to do with it. They could have had that years earlier. <laughs> Amazing, right? Sometimes it's the simplest things, right? It doesn't have to be groundbreaking or, you know, sort of <laughs> chemical nuclear physics. It, 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 sometimes it just needs to be super simple. Take the time, right? Well, that's it. And, um, you know, well, I have, a, I have a thing that I talk about with all my clients is that there's, there's a, a misnomer that a boring problem begets a boring solution. Well, I think we need to turn that around. I think boring problems can create the most exciting solutions. And we also have to get past the fact that innovation doesn't equal technology. Innovation could actually be anything. And it also doesn't have to be sexy either. It, again, it could be anything. It's about what's going to add value to the organisation, to the people, to the customers, to everyone in there. Hmm. And what what do you see there as the is the part of the the genius within that example? What is the genius part? Do you think the genius is that for me? Every time I go to an organisation, I see the same thing. You've got amazing people, no matter what level of the organisation they are, solving a problem every minute of every day. They may not understand what they're solving or they may not understand what to do with that or how it connects with everything else. But they are solving your internal customer's problem or your external customer's problem. And the problem with that is we don't gather that information very, very well. We think we do, but we don't gather it. And then we set aside a separate area of the organisation, you know, who's kind of like, set aside and they're set on high and we talk about strategy and what that means and how we're going to drive the vision of the organization that's all great yes we need that but we also need all these genius ideas from everywhere else in the organization 
to actually fulfill that strategy, to, to make our customers happy, to give them what they want and to create those step changes that are going to make the real differences. And I think that part of that is missing. We know it, but organisations don't give them the rules, the frameworks and the structures to play in that space. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, the simplicity of even as you talk about it is, is wonderful. It, it's capturing things that are potentially right underneath your nose, right? You know, it's that, it's clever management, clever leadership, which is it? I don't know, or just teamwork. It's it's everything. It's all of the above, but every organization, like on, on the, the majority of them will say, well, I, I capture ideas. I have a spreadsheet or I have a repository. I, we get them to put them into a portal. We do something. But the majority of times that's where it stops, like what happens then? And what we do is very, very different. We make sure all the ideas are completely transparent to everyone in the organisation. I believe that transparency engenders trust. We need people to see what's going on. And then we can see what's happening with those ideas so they don't hit dead ends. Um, the challenge for that is always the downside. The downside is not every idea is viable. Not every idea can be done. And we have to be very clear about how we prioritise, how we choose, how we allocate budget to the right ideas. Um, not everyone is going to agree with that. They never do in any organisation. But at least they have transparency. They can see what's going on and they can see where each idea is being moved to and how it comes together. I just said, yeah, I mean, it's sort of almost the reverse of, you know, like almost, um, you know, it's. Um, like a, a business startup program or a vulture fund type thing whereby 10 will set off, you know, seven may not make it, three may do okay, but one will, one or two will fly. And it's almost the same here, right? You know, because you, you got to investigate, you got to turn over a few stones. Some may be viable, some may be not, but you got to at least go through the exercise, right? Absolutely. It is a bit of a numbers game. So, you know, how do you triage the ideas when they come in? Um, how do we trust it with the right people so that we are getting a view of what could actually happen? Um, what happens if somebody hits an idea and they decide that's not for them because it doesn't add value to the division that they work in? Hmm. It could actually be great for the rest of the organisation. These are the mistakes we're trying to avoid um, and trying to get past because innovation's for everyone. It's it's not the job of just one area, one division. It's actually actually the job of everyone inside the organization is there any organizations that would be sort of fairly well known that would be you know stand out in this field for change or for innovation or for implementation um there's a few actually so people like the tata group do it really well actually um i like them because they talk about they talk they actually reframe some of that conversation really well and they allow more success to be celebrated around failures than any other organization that I've seen. Um, but it's not about, oh, we tried something, we failed. It's actually about how we put in quite a rigid process to test an idea. We actually worked it to the ground. You know, I call it actually how they worked the problem methodically until it actually ran out of oxygen to decide whether it was good or bad. Um, and then they're the best organisation I've seen internationally to say, actually, we're going to tell you about why we failed. We're going to tell you about why we failed, how we failed, why it's not going to work, 
so that we can actually share our learnings with everyone so no one else tries this or they can you know, make sure they put this learning into their product or process and they do better that way. And as a result, that level of transparency opens it up to the whole organisation to say, as long as you're trying your hardest, you're doing it under the correct structure and you're not just like trying to do something a bit airy-fairy and wing it in, everything's great. We're working our best and this is a great way to be. Just break that down because not everyone will, will sort of have picked up on that, you know, celebrating failure. It sounds counterintuitive, right? You know, it's sort of going, why, why would you celebrate that? But there's so much power within that, right? Absolutely. So I totally believe that we should celebrate failure. But maybe we should change the words. I'm not sure what the word would be, but hmm. we've only failed when we didn't try. Um, it, it, the way I see it is if we have put some structures in place, we've been quite methodical about how we've gone around a discovery, a process or an incubation of an idea, but we still couldn't make it work. That level of robustness has showed us it's never going to work. So we shouldn't actually dig into those sunk costs and try and implement it just because of our ego. That's the point to celebrate failure. And that's why we need to share it with everyone, particularly in the corporate world, because we seem to be really afraid of if I tell someone I got it wrong, that will impact my performance review or my key performance indicators, my bonus, my potential promotion. Whereas I, I think we need to reframe the way we view that so that if we've done it in a way that makes sense, it adds to the value of the role that you're doing. It adds to the value of the leadership that you're giving and it adds to the value of the work that the people around you are learning from. We just need to think about it differently. So from your point of view, I mean, what lessons do you think you got to to the, to the point that you are now? I mean, what were the key takeaways? You know, you, mean, you mentioned different businesses, you mentioned different things. You know, what's, what's your you know, rules of life, if you like, or your, you know, your, your lessons going forward? Oh, actually, uh, it's quite funny because I'm, I'm quite a, you know, I'm quite an analytical person um, coming from my financial background. So I actually even wrote myself a framework one day when I wanted to think about it. And, you know, it's really interesting. In, in Excel so by chance? I know it's a really pretty little document. So, oh, uh, you know, it's a nice little pretty document. It sits up on my wall. Wow, very visual. Yeah, I like it. So just for anyone that's listening, it's it's a it's a pretty graphic. It is a very nice graphic. So yeah. Yeah, and it's my it's a it's a personal nine-step framework that I worked out what it is that's giving me the success in the areas of my life and the work that I do. And the reason why I did that was because I was asked to mentor some young women through a professional development program in an organisation. And I just thought, oh, they said, well, what is it and how do you get there? And I thought, I have to really think about that. What is that going to be? So I wrote that down and then, and that was years and years and years ago and that, and that became my process. And so I can take you through that if you like. Um, That'd be wonderful, I'll through, yeah. I'll go through it fairly quickly. But, hmm. you know, the first step for me, which is really important, was something that I learned very early on um, in life going to university. It was actually value learning over money. So mm -hmm. don't drive into things that just because you think they're going to get lots of money, actually think about personally for me, what am I learning? What am I going to be able to take from this? And I think about that with everything I do. So 
Um, I have this process with my staff and me, which is that because we're consultants, is that if we're not earning, we're learning. So I don't care what you're learning, as long as you're learning something, because it all brings value back to everything that we do every day. Um, And the second part of the framework is that you heard me say this a little earlier, and I teach this to all my clients, is that ideas are easy, cheap and fast. We all have ideas. I am notorious for having millions of ideas all the time. And I and I talk about them coming at those, you know, inopportune moments. Like um, I have a little notebook in my car so that after I finish in the gym in the morning, I write down all the notes that I've had because for whatever reason, when I finished my F45 session, I've got a million ideas that I need to think, oh, I wonder if that would work. Most of them are probably terrible. But, you know, but that's what I mean. You can have all these brilliant ideas all the time and, you know, I get them in the shower or, you know, all those different things. So, but it's what you do with that, which takes you to the next stage of the framework because discipline matters. You can't just have an idea. You have to be disciplined about what you're going to do. Disciplined in the process, disciplined in your thinking, disciplined in the way you are going to try and implement everything around discovery, data, what you need to do to make that happen. Um, and then this is where things, you know, this is all great. You're on the upside of everything you're trying to do in your life. You're usually on the uphill side. And then this is where it usually starts to dip a little bit. And this is where things probably might go a bit wrong. They might go a bit pear-shaped. They get really difficult because it's not maybe working out. You're not taking all those steps forward as you'd like to. And this is where I say you need to choose your heart. So you need to actually choose what it is that you're going to do, which is, it is hard to get up every day and work on something that hasn't quite delivered any value yet. Or, you know, it's hard to write a book not knowing if it's going to make any sense to the outside world or if anyone's going to buy it. It is hard to start a new business. And and we've got a startup that we're working on at the moment inside of our business. So these are things that are very hard, but you have to choose your heart every single day. Say, despite anything else that I'm going to do, I'm going to continue to work on this. Um, And someone who says it a lot better than me and more eloquently is actually Jim Collins with his 20-mile methodology where he says you just have to consistently set and walk your 20 miles each day to get to where you're going. And that's what choosing your heart is, no matter if it's raining, sleeting, you know, if it's searingly hot, you just have to get up and you have to walk the miles in your business and do what you need to do consistently to get to where you're going. Um, And the other part of this is that what you resist persists. So the things that you're ignoring, the things that you're putting off, the things that you don't want to do, you know, we've all got them on our to-do list or they're in the too hard basket or um, they're the things that we're not sure are going to work in the idea but we just want to go and do the fun stuff. It's about eating the elephant so that we don't resist them because if we do resist them, they will continually persist and they are the ones that are going to be a real pain in the bum later on. They are the one that they're, they're literally going to bite you in the ass later on. So fix those things early do the painful things and so we can see what's going to actually really, really work. Um, And then this is something that my dad taught me. So number six is bending with the breeze. And what this is about was I was probably quite rigid and adamant and I'm very headstrong and opinionated. So 
Um, when I was a lot younger in my career, my father said to me, you need to learn how to bend with the breeze a little bit because you need to understand how to sway with what's happening around you. It doesn't mean you have to break, but if you don't move and bend with that breeze of the political tide and the organisation or what's happening around you, you will snap and you will break. Um, so you have to learn to move with it so that you're just not standing rigid in the breeze. And so this is what happens when things aren't going well in, you know, the work that we're doing or the startup or we're not getting what we want. What are we doing to move with the environment instead of trying to work against it? Um, and so that's what that's really about. And so this point um, in the framework, I know that this is a lot, so, so bear with me. So you've got, you've got a lot of hows and you've got a lot of whats and you've got a lot of whys. This is the time to start combining it all. You need to put the whole picture. So this is when you need to combine your what, whys and hows to actually make sense of it all. So this doesn't just end up being disparate little bits of things. You know, this is a great model for a startup because this is how you do put it all together. Um, and then this is coming into that learning, which is failure through learning. So you're going to go through iterations and processes and what bits are we failing on? so that we understand how to learn and move forward with that. And then I'm going to get to the most important one that um, an amazing person by Keith Abraham taught me, and he said, you can't outdream your self-esteem. So what he's really saying is you can have the biggest dreams in the world, but if you don't truly believe in yourself and your ability, you're never going to make it. You can never outdream your self-esteem. So you have to be understanding what you're capable of, really dig deep and believe in yourself, know what you're capable of and reach for the stars. That's a, I love those. They're fantastic. So powerful, really, aren't they? It's, yeah, it's up on my wall. It's what I look at every day. Um, and it's what I share with people that come and work with us because that's how I work. It's what I believe in. And it's what, you know, it's, it's what gets, you know, we all have hard times in business. Um, so it's what gets me through. Um, it's what I believe in. Uh, I get it. I get it. How's, how's your self-esteem out of interest? It's pretty good, actually. It's, it's had a few knocks and hits in this last 18 months, I'll tell you that, that's for sure. Um, uh, it's, you know, I think like every other business, um, particularly in the consulting world, we've, we've had more than our ups and downs on, um, you know, this whole COVID environment. We've lost clients, we've won clients, I've lost staff members, I've gained staff members. Um, it, you know, and some of that I take quite personally and some of it I don't. So, um, yeah, it's, I will, I will admit that it took a real blow for a period of time, but then I had to realise that I have to come back to the core, central, authentic person that I am and realise that none of that is me and I have to focus on me um, and I can't let that knock me off my perch because I've had enough of that. I've, I've been through divorces and all those things. So you have to realize that the strength that you gain from all those things, you have to hold on to and be truly authentic to yourself. And it's never perfect, but yeah, it's been a bit up and down. 
Out of interest, I mean, how much how much of you do you think you've been able to close that gap between who you are and, and your true self? I mean, you know, is it something, are you able to, to close it, be effective in that way, do you think? I think so. So, um, you know, it's interesting. You, you go through moments of um, um, where you think you've got it all in control um, and then you realise that actually perhaps you don't. Um, and I found myself in the last, say, 24 months making probably some not great decisions with some of the people that we worked with um, and and some of the work that we were doing. Um, it didn't align with our values. And we probably took it on based on um, that, uh-oh, this is a need, this is a really hard market where, you know, the world is shutting down. All these things are happening. This is a should moment. We we should do this, and they didn't feel right. They didn't. Sure, the work we delivered was great because oh, I'm never going to let bad work happen. And another another of my team, they they really pride themselves on it. But none of it felt good, and none of it felt right, and all of it felt hard. You know that feeling? All of it felt really hard. And so we just had to have that come to Jesus moment to say, what are we, what are we really doing here? Like, is this right? Are these, is this right for our business? Is this, is this who we want to be? Is this how we want to work? Um, and so we made some hard decisions. And you know, in effect, what I've done is I've cleared out quite a large section of the portfolio. And it felt really weird and odd and scary. But at the same time, I felt like a thousand kilos lighter um, in that space. Um, and I think when you do that, what it did, it, it allowed, it might sound a bit weird, but it's almost like it allows the universe room to bring the next thing in. So, you know, in the last couple of weeks even, um, I've actually met a few different people that are really aligned with in the business. Um, and we've got some strategic partnerships happening and we've got a new burst of energy around something that we've wanted to do for a really long time but didn't have the time or the space for, and now we do. So I think I think making those decisions are hard, they're scary, but they need to be done so that you can move to the things that actually make sense, that feel authentic to yourself. Do you know, as I listen to you, I'm, I'm really struck, very kinesthetic language, very touch-based, feeling-based, you know, and a lot of feelings there, which is great, which ties in nicely to your sort of intuition side, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the real feminine energy that I bring mm. in, in quite a masculine world, which is like innovation is quite a masculine world and, and that's what I do, but I, I definitely bring that feminine energy into that. I, I kind of see that's a little bit of my superpower in that space. Is that your USB, do you think? Is, is that part of it? Um. I don't know, actually. I don't know. I suppose coming from, you know, you're saying banking, investment banking, things like that, that's that's very male-based, right? You know, so that's, that's a very different energy. Oh, it's completely different, but it's definitely where I learned and honed my skills. But I also realised that um, it was also where I was really good because um, where I realised I was really good I just knew when it was a great deal. And that's part of where I work really well inside the corporate environment. 
Um, one of my clients said to me, and I love the way they they spoke to me about this because I love movies. It was like he said it was like the Matrix. You could just see through the Matrix. You knew exactly where all the problems were and how to put it together. And it was like you just created this new thing. And I think that's that, you know, that whole masculine world of the analytics and what's going on in that space and that feminine energy of just watching, looking, seeing and understanding what's happening with everything, the people and the movements and, and trying to put it all together. It's kind of where I fit in. Mm. But that's mastery, right, isn't it? I mean, that's it's, a, it's experience, it's wisdom, you know, because anyone can have a one-deal wonder, you know, but it takes a master to be able to, outperform to consistently come out ahead you know that that's the difference right you know and if you can use your feminine energy your masculine energy and you know tie those together rather than just you know using your masculine energy is great but you're going to burn out and you know it's only a matter of time before your your next deal is not good right so you know tying those two together is beautiful yeah yeah i don't know if i call it mastery i feel like i've don't feel like I've mastered anything enough yet, but you know, I, I like the thought of that. I just don't think I'm there yet. <laughs> well, that's the thing, I suppose, isn't it? Well, I mean, it depends. Some people follow the, the 10,000 hour rule or whatever. You know, you do something long enough that you know you might want to self-declare, but it's like, well, you've you've done more than anyone else, or you're <laughs> you're the most you're the, the most established person at the table, put like that, which by default sort of makes you the, the senior, but no, it's uh, it's super super interesting. Talk to me there. I mean, in in your language and things, ego comes up quite a bit for me. What what does ego mean to you? Oh, ego. Um, well, that's a tough one. It's like um, it's one of those things. It can it can kind of be a devil and a bit of an angel all at the same time, can't it? So um, for me, ego can be it's the thing that we want to should do might think is the right thing um, for the outside world. And I think that can that can drive some not so great decisions. Um, but it's all for me, it's about how it comes back to casting that aside, which is not easy. Um, it sounds easy in theory, but I think it's quite difficult from time to time and thinking about always coming back to being really centered, really being authentic and what's actually going to make me, be aligned with my values to feel good and, you know, sleep at night and be proud to say what I'm doing for my daughter and my partner and all those things. And that's part of what that is. It's that management of ego. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a two, two, two edged sordidly, isn't it? You know, it's, um, it can be most useful. And I suppose, especially in the, in the corporate world, do you tend to come up against much ego and, uh, you know, obviously you're stepping into areas and that could be deemed as a well, one, okay, you're coming to solve our problems. And two, do we have problems? Who are you? <laughs> I come up against a lot of ego all the time. Um, it comes up as, you know, I do what you do, but no one does what we do. That's kind of what we sell ourselves on is the fact that we don't do this for you. We're empowering you. We're going to show you a totally different way to do it. Um, and then the other side of that is we don't need you. Um, and, and the other side of that is we do a lot of advisory for boards and strategic leadership teams and the C-suite in really large organizations. And the ego, um, poses itself in a, in a manner of, um, I don't really want you to tell me, I just want you to validate my opinion. Um, and 
I've never been good at that ever. Like I, I don't know if I've ever actually done that right. I've only ever been able to tell you what I actually genuinely think. And that doesn't always win. <laughs> so when I get clients that they're happy with that and they're happy for those robust discussions, I'm I'm all there for it. And the ones that just want me to agree with them and validate their opinion, I have found that we just haven't gelled and we we don't really work together. Is that is that sort of a because a higher level of feminine energy? You know, I'm just thinking because the ego you won't go within a hundred yards of, as you say, unless you're there to validate what they've just said, <laughs> and then you can stay as long as you don't question or challenge in any shape or form, right? You know, it's like, um, yeah. but actually, thought leaders and and such are ones that do ask, do sort of be open or feel what's right, what's wrong. What do you think? Yeah, and there's there are plenty of great leaders, boards, C-suites out there that we work with that are incredible at having those robust discussions and are really good. And um, I love that environment. That's, you know, I love getting up and getting out of bed and, and doing those things. That's really great. Um, and But when I was a bit younger in the early parts of my career, I always just thought it was me not delivering the information correctly. It was my style or my tonality or... Um, you know, what I was doing. I always thought it was me. And then, you know, it, it, it's just a bit of maturity, a bit of, you know, <laughs> in time in the corporate world, you realise, oh, it's not. Um, but these are the people that you're probably never going to work well with. So just choose differently. Mm. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Sure. Dinner, par- dinner party for five. You get a leader, five leaders around the table. Dead or alive, travel distance, no problem. Who's coming? Leaders. Are these are these like world leaders or um... whatever? Whatever you deem as a leader, or whoever has been significant in your world, either personally or otherwise. Okay, I I really like. Um, well, let's get into this. This is really this. You put me on the spot. It's a tough one. I really like Angela Merkel from mm-hmm. Germany. Mm-hmm. I think she has been an incredibly amazing leader. Mm-hmm. And I've always uh, enjoyed what she's done. Mm-hmm. Um, I like foreign politics, so, you know, you might have to go with me a little bit here. Okay. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. Kofi Annan when he was uh, in the UN, so mm-hmm. and level of diplomacy in that space. So and I'm just trying to think of some corporate leaders that I think are really amazing. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm really bad with names, Pete. This has been... <laughs> 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 um, but what, um, there's some really interesting leaders, um, but um, I can't um, I can't think of her name. But she was the lady that started the company Spanx. Um, oh, Sarah Blakely. Sarah. Yes. Yeah, yes. Sarah Blakely. Yeah. And I and I really like her story, and I love to see how she pushed through there. Um, and I really just you know dead or alive. You said so. I'd actually always put in Joan Rivers because I thought she was hysterically funny. <laughs> She was definitely a leader in her field and her story of continually pushing through in a very male-dominated world really interests me Um, and she's been extremely successful. So that gives me four and a really interesting, crazy conversation around the table. Um, um, Who else would I put there? Um, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. (laughs) You'll come back to us. Yeah. If someone was, if we were trying to describe your style, then how how would we describe it? Um, whether through 
other leaders or or otherwise you know the, your style of how you work and and how you lead um my style is um uh i, I come across um probably a little quiet uh, at first i'm actually by by nature um an introvert but i can be quite extroverted in the right um context for work um and what what i get from that introversion is i like to observe understand see how people work i like to read a lot about what's happening i digest huge amounts of information every day i feel like i've got volumes of just you know terrible useless facts for great for trivia nights in my in my head <laughs> one of those um and I like to take a lot of information in to understand what's really happening before I make lots of decisions. Um, as a leader, I would hope that I am really empowering to the people around me. I love to, you know, a lot of people say it, but not everyone does it. I love to get people that are much smarter than I could ever be, really awesome at what they do and empower them to be amazing and great. So I have some people that work with me in Goya that they have skills that I just don't have at all. Um, and for some people that would probably be quite scary, they'd see that as threatening. But they're, in the reality is I see that as they are delivering a whole core component of things that I can't do and they're amazing at what they do. And I let them lead massive programs of work, complete client relationships. So I'm hoping that I'm empowering people to grow, develop, learn, and be the face, um, and I'm supporting them on that. I have their back, um, and I, I believe in, you know, huge amounts of transparency, being super authentic, and giving people a safe space to vent when things go wrong. Like, you know, come and bring me every four-letter word that you've got a problem with and, you know, vent it all out, and then then we'll go and work out the problem knowing that I've got your back. Um, that's how I would I would hope my team sees me. Mm. Oh well. Wow. And what's what is your sort of modus operandi for actually, you know, when you're into flow state? Where would we find you at your genius, if you like, you know, coming out in your your full form? Oh, I'm I'm in my flow state when I'm writing. I really enjoy writing and thinking through that, um, putting everything down. Um, I'd probably be here in my home office. Um, with some music on, um, writing down all my ideas, um, whether that's writing into, um, I'm writing out some white papers. We've got a lot of data that we've been gathering and using at the moment. So building that into some, what does that mean for the future? Or like I wrote a book um, and, or, or writing out new, we've got some really new and interesting ideas for a tech startup that we're doing but also a financial venture that we're doing. So and putting everything into that and writing it down and constructing it, that's where you'd find me in my flow state. Wow. And and is it the pen to paper? Or are you are you a big doodler? Where, where are we seeing, if we were to pick up one of your notebooks, are we seeing line structured, organized, or are we all over the place? It's a it's a bit of everything. I definitely I def, I have huge amounts of notebooks for different things, um, but I also do a lot of um, scribbling. I'm a terrible artist, so you there's no pictures or anything in there. But 
Definitely lots of scratchy notes. Uh, it'd be impossible for someone to read. I have the most abhorrent handwriting. My mum always said I should have been a doctor. So it's, it's one of those illegible handwriting. And then from there, I just I just turn that into um, writing on the computer. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit of a scratch down my notes on paper, old school, and then write when I want to write. What was Money Alley's original plan? What what were you going to do when you grew up? Um, many many years ago at school, I was I was going to be a, a writer, um, but I, I don't. Um, and actually, I was going to be a ballet dancer as well. I was all down the path of that. Um, and then and then I don't know. I, I, you know, I got excellent grades at school. Um, my father was an academic. And, you know, quite rightly, he said, go to university and use it as an opportunity to test your thinking and see what you wanted to see. So I did my first degree in the politics of nonviolence to to learn how to be a diplomat, um, which I truly, truly loved. But there are zero jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me without heading again, the politics of nonviolence. And it was actually a degree to be a diplomat, basically. Wow. That's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's quite <laughs> specialist. That's good. I, I could see you getting into that. Yeah, oh, no, I totally love it, and I still love it. I, I read about it. Um, I do all those things. But, um, and interestingly enough, this is, um, I went and sat um, all the government exams to actually go into Department of Foreign Affairs um, and get on that graduate program to be a diplomat. And I got excellent grades, I got 100%, which was, you know, I thought that was pretty good. And then they asked me to go and do all the psychological testing and I thought, great, this is where we're going. And then the information came back that whilst I was really good, I would never... The, the words were, I would never follow the diplomatic agenda and I'd never walk the party line. I was, and so therefore I was ruled out from the graduate program. <laughs> I failed the psych test. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. That's um, mm, challenging, isn't it? Oh, it's, uh, you know, I think it's all part of the fun actually, but, you know, maybe I dodged a bullet, you know, pardon the pun on that one, but, you know, um, yeah, this is all part of the journey of life to where you, where you go. And I, I'm not sorry for the things I studied. I loved it. Mm. And are, are you where you're supposed to be now, do you think? Where do you sit on that? I think so. I've had, um, I haven't had one of those straightforward linear careers like like a lot of people. I've, um, I've been very open to different things. Um, so I have... You know, um, I have wondered what what would it have been like if I took a more structured approach to my career, or would I still have ended up in the same place? I don't know the answer to that. I I actually started out in politics. I started out working for the leader of the house in Canberra in federal politics here uh, in Australia, um, and I did that for a while, and then I didn't like living in Canberra. I, you know, I can say that only because I've lived there. Um, I found it a bit boring as a young person. And then I did what a lot of Australians do. I I got my two-year visa and I went over to London and I thought I'll get a job. And then I ended up working for the Minister for Education and Skills. 
um, in Westminster. So I ended up working for another politician in the house, uh, basically in in London, which was really which was really fantastic, and I really enjoyed that. And then it was one of those things. I, I think I just happened to be right place, right time. Um, and then I got given an opportunity. They said, "Would you go and lead a, a project?" Because I've been doing all the project work for education and skills. Would I go lead a project at Transport for London? And you know, I, I was like, "Yeah, sure, why not?" I had no idea what I was getting myself into, and I thought, "Yeah, why not? I'll do that. Sounds like fun." Um, and the next thing you know, I'm getting financial qualifications. I'm doing public-private partnerships around infrastructure, and then I found myself working in the money markets in London. And um, then I came back and I worked for banks, and I did structured finance and investment banking. And it, it just, you know, you just never know that they're going to have that sliding door moment that's going to completely change your career. And that's exactly um, what's happened to me. Um, and then I ended up there in mining, doing mergers and acquisitions, and you know that I've had a sustainability startup as a result of that. And I have just found myself being open to opportunities and, and taking them. And that's why I think I ended up being good at what I do today, putting all those learnings together. And now instead of um, just seeing what happens and sort of like floating around <laughs> with the breeze a little bit. Now I actually drive those opportunities for organisations and I that's kind of, I think, where I am. So maybe I am where I'm meant to be, but I have always wondered what would, it, what would it have been like if I'd have been one of those really regimented people who knew what they wanted to study at university, followed the graduate program, took every step. Um, would I be in the same place? Who knows? That's about 1% of the population of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. everyone else's career is like a pinball machine it's like yeah I, I did this and then that and I, I many years ago I remember sitting in a in a meeting room waiting for the client and two large teams of people and and for just for fun really we went around the table because someone was doing a, a, a further education degree and going around the table people saying their job title and what they did as a degree I think I was possibly the only person at the table that had a job connected to my degree everything else was <laughs> completely left field but listen that's life right that's the rich tapestry of it you know i Looking think so and i i think that exactly you 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 do become richer mm. for it mm. um i think of all the wonderful things i've learned along the way the wonderful people that i've met and it's taken me lots of places around the world so it's been great mm. How how are you with yourself? I mean, do you are you good to yourself? Do you are you able to always see the good side of it and get yourself up and going and and sort of see the positive? Or where, where do you sit? How's the voices? How's the voices? I'm I'm a I'm an optimist. Um, I, I you know, and I definitely I, I don't be don't be wrong. I I think sometimes I can be too hard on myself. I'm a um, I'm. I have super high standards of what I want that delivery of everything in my life to look like. So I think I can be a little hard on myself sometimes. But so optimists, uh, optimists verging on perfectionist. We're we're on that sliding scale, it seems. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. You've, you've got to be really honest with yourself, haven't mm. you? Um, mm. Otherwise, you know, there's no point lying to yourself about that. So sometimes I have to tone that perfectionist thing down. Um, and, I, you know, someone told me many, many, many years ago that it's about being prolific, not perfect. Hmm. 
Um, and that makes a lot of sense to me. It doesn't always work for me, but, you know, definitely get there. And I think the challenge that, you know, is um, what I don't like is that toxic positivity. Um, so, um, you know, when people just just brushing off, just be happy, I, I'm not that type of positive optimist. I think I would much more of a realist. I definitely tell it like it is. If something's not going right, I want to feel every part of it so then I can understand it, own it, and know what I need to do next so that I can process it and then move on. I'm not going to brush it aside and pretend it didn't happen. Um, so for me, that's part of the optimism. It's like really, truly understanding what happened so that you can you can actually work out what's the way forward um, and, and understand how to do that positively rather than just pretending everything's okay and everything's fine. Yeah, it makes sense. It takes a lot to do that. Need to be able to reflect. So, I mean, tell me, well, what what are you good at, and what are you terrible at? Oh, what am I good at? Um, I'd like to think I'm really good at my job. Um, but uh, I think I'm I think I'm a really good writer, um, which is something that's taken me a long time to understand. Um, because I've, I never really showed anyone my work, but um, I was pretty happy that my first book became a bestseller. So I thought, well, that that did all right. So I was happy with that. Um, what am I really crap at? Um, I am crap at things like drawing, um, those artistic, creative things. Like um, I'm really good at creativity from that writing, speaking, those those types of things. Um, but I'm my I'm terrible at drawing, acting, you know, all those all those types of things. <laughs> Like anything that doesn't have a definition, it's like they're the things that are pushed away because it's subjective, right? You know, art, yeah. acting, whatever. It's like someone say, oh, it's good. Someone says it's not so good, but it's non-binary. So yeah, there's no right or wrong. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. What's something you'd love to say, but you just really can't often say it or really get out there? Um. Uh, it sounds terrible, but I always joke about this with my partner. And I said, you know, one day he'll get the tattoo. I was like, Ali's right. <laughs> so. <laughs> so a version of I told you so? Those, well, it's one of those things. I, I have this methodology that I don't ever enter an argument if I think I'm wrong. Like, you know, some people just argue. Um, if I'm going to put my point forward, professional or even with friends or whatever it is, um, you know, we're not just talking about just throwing ideas around, but if I'm if I'm going to put my point forward, I do believe I'm right. Um, so if I'm a bit hesitant or if I'm really unsure of things or I just don't have any facts, I'm just not going to buy in. So therefore, I, that's why I say to my partner, I like, see, Ali's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> and same with clients. They always say, mm, so that happened. And I have to say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> So what we're going to do now is, yeah. <laughs> but that it almost ties back to what you're saying. That sort of, and I think it's a bar in itself, that listening technique is first of all observing as opposed to, okay, who has implemented what I said? You know, it's going, how's it going? What's happening? What's the thought process? Okay, now that we've got the facts, that's going to work. Yeah. yeah. That's a very different process, right? Yeah, exactly. 
And that takes, to me, that takes maturity. I mean, that's the point, you know, is, is, as you say, you know, to go into a client and sort of saying, right, I'm bringing all these ideas. It's, and, I, and I've, <clears throat> I'm inspired by, you know, those sort of the three words that you use, but the last one being transformation, you know, because anyone can inspire and anyone can motivate, but that doesn't mean it's going to transform, right? You know, because motivation is great. It'll last to the end of the day. Inspiration will last the end of the month, but transformation will last a lifetime if it's done right. Yeah, but but not only that, transformation is more than about one person in an organization. It's mm. it's about all the people in the organization. So uh, and you know, where we go wrong, I think in many instances, particularly with strategy and innovation, we entrust it to a very small number of people and we skill them up and we do lots of amazing things with them and then they leave. Like why wouldn't they? They're either poached. They're looking for the next promotion. They're looking for the next challenge. They go and they do their own thing. Whatever the case may be, it's all right. But transformation is about creating a pervasive, scalable and repeatable culture of that process inside the whole organisation, not just with a small number of people. And that's what we need to do. And that's that's what I love doing and that's the focus. Um, And that's why I think we make a difference because we're not just like, Let's do this one little piece of work. No, actually, let's build a whole ecosystem to make sure it really works over time. That's always an interesting one. I mean, and, and I'm sure a lot of people will relate to that. Whereas, you know, people say, well, why would I invest so much in my staff? Because they've got two legs and they can walk out of here. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's that thing of going, where, where do I stop here? Because is it a trust issue? Is it a big picture issue? Or, you know, where do you sit? Where, what's your thoughts? I think you should really invest in your staff. I think your people are your biggest, greatest um, and best asset. And I think it was Richard Branson. I could be wrong now. I'm terrible with names. But he said, you know, like people concerned about being investing in the staff. But what if they stay? If you heavily invest in your staff and they stay, you've created an even better asset than you had before. And if you invest in them and you love them, and you treat them like they are the best asset that you've got, why would they go anywhere? The majority of them will stay um, because you are continually developing them. You're growing different ideas. You're helping them challenge themselves and the people around them, and you're giving them the tools that they need to do to do their very best job. Um, And I would add one more thing to that, that um, it is becoming a lot more um, pervasive in organisations now, and it's definitely at the strategic table for boards which is profit for purpose and innovation for purpose and adding purpose into the organization and when we do that we add greater value to our people and they get a better culture and better engagement in the work that they're doing so we need to think about how we do those intangible value adds as well that's really interesting because i mean you know profit for purpose and and even innovation for purpose you know, that's, there's a lot there, right? Because otherwise you can say, yeah, listen, it's great ideas. I'm going to implement, I'm going to do this, but what's the overall ethos? What's the purpose of the company, right? Because otherwise it's, it's a bunch of people who get jacked up on an idea and go crazy and, and listen, may well be very successful, but what the hell is the point of it all? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, what are we doing? How are we, how are we either adding to the collective good or how are we making the world a better place? 
Um, and that, that's actually a bit of a passion point for us in Goya is like we've, we've been so lucky to work on amazing projects where we've done cement projects where we've reduced the carbon load um, and we've gone through some processes to help people think through that. Obviously, we don't do that work. We just help them through the thinking models um, to think about how do we significantly reduce carbon in cement to create better outcomes for the environment when we do infrastructure programs. Um, we've done all sorts of things about recycling bitumen and garbage um, and glass and putting it together to create um, new and different types of cycle paths so that we're not creating new cement, we're using old cement. Um, so, we're, again, reducing carbon loads. All of that is a for-purpose opportunity because it's actually fulfilling the needs of the environment and how are we going to create a better world for the future around us. So. Um, it's amazing. They look like really dirty companies when you think about a lot of these companies, like from like what they do, but the people inside them want to do it better. And so mm -hmm. if we give them that opportunity for purpose, they really do come out with these amazing ideas. Like who knew you could blow carbon off cement in the manufacturing process? Well, these engineers did. So, you know, we just got to give them the opportunity to do it. It is like that Michael idea, isn't it? You know, and sometimes it doesn't have to be rocket science and, and earth shattering. Sometimes it's the little things that may sort of add up to make the big change. Exactly. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. That's so powerful. Are you at a stage in your life to know your purpose? I mean, is is it part of that, do you think? Is it, do you, do you know your calling? Um, no, I don't actually. It, it's... Um... I don't, I don't really know what that is. Um, I've always wondered about that. I didn't I didn't ever feel that I was put here for just one thing. You know how some people just have that one really amazing genius mm. and they follow it their whole life? That wasn't me. I, I don't really know what my, my purpose is. Mm. So I'll just keep going along, chugging along and, you know, delivering value and being happy, I suppose. <laughs> that That's a purpose in itself, is it not? Yeah, just a deliver volume be happy that's that's a that's an awesome purpose yeah no it's 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 different i mean different people are at different places you know and, and you know really you were what you know what it means for them you know and i mean do you do you forward plan do you sort of see where you're going to be in five years ten years do you visualize manifest what's what's your creative process so i do i write it down um um it's I don't do five years, but I definitely do a 12-month and 24-month. Where do I want to be at the end of that process? Um, and the analytical side of my brain comes out and I write it down. Like I, this is, I can define figures, numbers. Um, so I can talk about, you know, how much money that I would like to have in revenue in the bank and like how many clients, how many projects we want to live in. I, I write it all down and I actually do it all personally as well. So I do one for work, one for personal. And I stick it up on my wall and I look at it every day. Yeah, that's, that's what it's all about. You know, it's all about the creativity and the, and the you know. To talk to me about the writing process for your book. Um, so to be fair, I got a writing coach because I thought if I'm going to do this, I don't want to completely mess it up. <laughs> I haven't done this before. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of learning. Um, so I didn't want to pretend that I was just going to be this amazing expert. So I got a book coach to help me, um, build out the framework of what the, the structure of the book should be from an energetic flow. And, you know, to, so that we can think about 
um, because the content was all mine. Um, I had this and it was probably more about just putting it in the right order to take the, the reader through a really nice sequential energetic flow to get them through the book. Um, and once I worked out what that was going to look like, and then I named all of the chapters just by title and I put them in order and, um, I literally just sat down and wrote for about six weeks and that was that. And it was simply because I wasn't creating anything new. It was almost like I was brain dumping years of my work and my stories and my way of doing things and all the models that I use at work. Um, obviously, they're quite condensed that you can't get all that information. There's, but, you know, it's it's everything from how I think about minimum viable bureaucracy, which is something that I use, how I put incubation teams together, what, what, what I believe an innovation leader should look like, what are all the demons, what are all the myths, and everything just laid out and it was just... It was quite a cathartic process to get it all out of my head and I got to the end and went, I didn't know I knew so much. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? If the, the, that's the genius coming out, right? You go into flow state and the genius comes out to play and as you say, that the book just spills out because, you know, written in six weeks and a lifetime to, to think of it. or to. to yeah, I, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not, it's not easy. It was really hard, hard to do. Yeah. And then you get, you get days where it just flows out and other days where you think, oh, this is terrible. Everything I'm writing is crap. Um, yeah, it's, I, I didn't find it easy, but I, it was, it was, yeah, it's very enjoyable though. And then, um, obviously then, then there's editing and rewriting and, and all the things that, that go along yeah, with that. That, so. that. That's the painful bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the writing was lovely. It's like, that's yeah. a, before writing a book myself, it's like, Oh God, you know, 50% of this is all about, you know, writing the book and, and then a bit of editing and then marketing. Right. Now I'm like going, I don't know. For me, it was about five to 10% is, is the writing the book in terms of effort. The editing was, yeah, that's just not my forte. <laughs> yeah, I'm a good editor, so thank goodness for that. But I got really nervous because sometimes things would come back and I'd say, oh, you didn't really do anything. He goes, no, no, that's fine as it is. And I'd get really nervous because I, in some areas there just was barely any editing and I was like, oh, oh, oh is that going to be okay? But no. So he was just said, some things you just don't change and others you do. Mm. That's a bit of the perfectionist gene coming back out again and going, oh, what I've, what oh, I've yeah. it, it was there, that's for sure. There was, there was a few little meltdowns, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but that's great though. I mean, that's, that's the whole point. But at least also, you know, it's authentic too. It's your words. It's, it's there. You know, bar the topping and tailing, it's 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 in principle it stayed as is, which is lovely. Nice way to be, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And and that's what um that's what this editor that I worked with is all about. It's actually about how does how does he make sure this is your voice? Um mm. and he's really only trying to make sure that it's um written well as opposed to changing it. Mm. Um so that yeah, that I thought that was great. Awesome. So what's something out there? I mean, whether it be on the bucket list or otherwise, it's coming up that we can help them manifest for you is there a second book is there a whole new thing or what's 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 out there what's out there i don't know about another book i'm not sure what um i would write about except you know there's a few topics but i think they'd be a bit heavy um what i what i'm really fascinated about is and i'm a i've always loved movies i'm a bit of a cinema cinephile and there's lots of 
um, things like that in my book. Um, some examples is that I'm really fortunate to start some work with the certain areas of the film industry. Mm. At the moment, and um, we're in the really super early stages of looking at a new um, film investment model to create investment for different types of films um, with different investors and putting that model together is something that's really different from how they do it today um, so that you don't just invest in one film, you invest in many films at once. hedging your bets a little bit, um, but also allowing to shift the risk across a number of different fields, films from a commerciality perspective as well. So early days, playing with that. I love film, um, can't act, probably could never write anything fiction, so I'm going to play with it in this space, the space that the space that I know. Absolutely, yeah. I was going to say, what's why not? I mean, it's almost like filmmaking slash Bitcoin you know, digital currency slash creativity slash, I don't know, the whole lot. <laughs> it is funny how in some ways, you know, you're saying the uh, the creativity is, is, you know, and the writing is there, but yet in the outward performance, it's structured. I don't know, there, yeah. there, there seems to be a bit of an inner and outer game going on there. You know, the inner game likes to be, yeah, sort of go play and create and, and come these things. And yeah, but when it's presented, it has to be listed, structured, formatted, pretty diagrams, all the rest, right? Yeah, it's a bit like that, isn't it? It's just like, you know, it, it's almost like that inner outer journey of the, you know, the hero's journey um, mm. that you go on. So, you know, what I do from an inner perspective and therefore, and then what you show the outside world. So, um, and I think that's just the by nature of um, what, has made sense and what has made me successful in my world is that's what is received well in the corporate world. Hmm. Um, that's probably, it's probably just a structured view of the world that I'm conditioned to. But I think it also carries, doesn't it? I mean, it's the, you know, what happens inside a company and what is perceived on the outside, you know, it's like <laughs> some may say it's like they're a terrible company to work for and everyone's going, but they're so they're nice. They're, they're this or they're whatever. Right. So you just get this, either misalignment or incongruency that says, oh, no, I thought it'd be brilliant. Or someone else saying, you know, there you mentioned Tata Steel and, and, you know, saying great organization doing amazing things. The outside perception is different, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. We awesome. see that all the time, all the time. Mm, mm. Being open. What's a guilty pleasure for you, Ali? Oh, a guilty pleasure. Uh, what you mean, apart from chocolate? Um, and some tequila. <laughs> alcohol and wine are, or alcohol and chocolate are pretty much 90% of the answers to this question. You know, yeah, it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, oh, you know it's, it's always the good thing. It's just like um, it sounds, it, it took me a long time to get into this mindset um, mm. having, you know, I, I'm divorced and so I share custody of my daughter with her father. But, you know, so on those weekends that we don't have her, you know, it's that, you know, just bottle of champagne, chocolate, a movie or some music or some jazz or something and talking. It's just like and it, it's almost a guilty pleasure to go, I'm relaxed because my child's not here. Mm. <laughs> it makes me sound terrible saying it out loud, but I'm sure many parents could understand I get it. what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> love my kids. Love to see them go. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, I think I think that we all need some downtime every now mm. and then. Mm. 
No, it is. What leisure and pleasure, what does that look like for you then? Leisure and pleasure. So, well, you know, if this world gets back on track, particularly in Australia, travel is a mm. huge, big thing of mine. I, I do... I do really love that. And I, um, you know, fortunately we're lucky in Australia. I do love getting into the great outdoors, love the beach, love going bushwalking. So that's, that's all really exciting. Um, and just, I don't know, I love my fitness as well. So I do do quite a bit of that. That's, um, that's something I work at, you know, almost every day makes, you know, I feel good and I feel safe when I do it. So is that like a bit always- of a therapy for you? Is it, is it just the, just to, to stretch your head, stretch your muscles clearer? No, I actually, um, I think it comes from being a dancer for most of, you know, most of my young life as well. I just really enjoy movement. Um, and, you know, I, I, yes, if you are stressed, it's, a, it's an amazing stress relief, but I just, I just feel better every time I do mm. it. So, but now I do like F45 and weights and, and things like that. So it's it's a you know when you get older it's good to feel strong <laughs> mm. no it's listen i mean i got it it's you know happy body happy hearts you know happy mind you know it's all it's all intrinsic to each other right you know it's exactly. you got you gotta keep what sort of dancing did you do when you were young classical very good very good yeah oh. i loved it yeah. yeah oh fun that's hence why you were thinking of being a ballerina when you were yes. yeah makes sense now it's all Probably wouldn't have uh, been my thing, but, you know, we've all got a dream as kids. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what it's all about, totally. Yeah. So tell me, if you were to try and summarise your fire in the belly in one or two words, what would it be? Um, say that again, might try and summarise my... Your fire in the belly in one or my two fire words. In the belly. Um, it's my chutzpah to, to make my stamp on the world. I feel like that's my... That's, it's almost like my indelible ink on the world. That's my fire in the belly. Mm, nice. I like it. I like it. So tell us, where can people reach out to you, follow you, track you, hunt you down, stalk you, any of the above? Yeah, they can find me on my um, consulting site. So goyaconsulting.com.au. Um, you can also find me at alimuller.com. Um, I'd love you to grab a copy of the book and read that, which that's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Book Depository. So on all good book platforms worldwide, you can pick up a copy of that or hit me up on LinkedIn. Ask me for my frameworks and I'll send them to you. Awesome. Awesome. And have you a final message you'd like to leave with our listeners? Um. What I would say is that um, we all need to look for our genius. It took me a long time to understand that, you know, that was part of what what I'm really good at helping other people understand. I think it's part of our role to to find it in everyone. Wow. Powerful. Ali, listen, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, your fantastic book and, and everything's out there for, for people to read and pick up. So... You know, just to shout out the name again, says Corporate Innovation, so I-N-N-E-R-V-A-T-I-O-N, Unlocking the Genius Inside Your Organization. So, Holly, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Pete. It's been fantastic. You're welcome. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that the people have been on. 
With loads more episodes coming up soon, and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you. 